All right, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. Genesis, chapter 39. We've covered two messages in the life of Joseph. And it's been so good that I've enjoyed it a lot, so I'm just going to continue dealing with Joseph for a little while. Joseph, Joseph in chapter 39, has a bunch of lessons for us again about what we are to do when we are done wrong how we are supposed to act when we are done wrong. You've heard me say a lot lately, it's not about your feelings and it's not about my feelings. We need to get over the feelings and grow up. Everything's about how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? Well, God wants you to do right, no matter how you feel. No matter how you feel. I want you to think about Joseph's situation tonight as we get into it. But we'll begin by reading the first 12 verses of chapter 39. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him. You might underline those three words in your Bible. He served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused, and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife." How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I want you to underline that last part. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How did did Joseph know that? He didn't have a Bible. How did he know that? He didn't have a Bible. He couldn't go to chapter and verse. How did he know that? Well, he knew God. He knew something of the power and glory of God just from creation itself. But it's interesting today that a lot of people in our churches have no clue about what great wickedness and sin this is. But he understood it. And I would say if he understood it and could do right, then people who have a complete Bible have the Holy Spirit of God living within them. They ought to know it too. Whether they hear it preached on or not, they ought to know it too. And if you've got the Holy Spirit of God living within you, if you don't, you're not saved. 
But if you've got the Holy Spirit of God living within you, you can make the right decision. He did. Well, I'll say more about that in just a little bit. So notice again, uh, let's see, verse 10. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. If I was to title this, it would be Joseph's boot camp. He's learning so he can serve. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, teach us some valuable lessons, good for all of us. Because all of us are going to experience being wronged by people. All of us are going to experience some hard times, some things that we don't feel that we deserve. But that doesn't mean we don't need them. I do pray you'd help us now today. Use the word of God in our lives and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember the story, of course. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers who actually hated him. We found that mentioned three times in chapter 37. That they hated him. Another time it says they envied him. And they sold him off into slavery. And all he had done was simply obey his father. He had done what his father told him to do. To go and check on his brethren. And he went the extra mile when probably he didn't have to. But he did that which was right. His position was changed overnight from a son to a slave. Not only that, his clothes have changed from barren to bond slave. His location has changed from the promised land to the preparation land. And his vocation has changed from being soft to being under the drudgery of slavery. Overnight, his entire world has changed. By the way, that could happen in any family here today. In a number of different ways, your whole situation could change overnight. Might be brought on by family, might be brought on by somebody you don't even know and somebody that doesn't even know you. How are you, how are you going to respond if something like that happens to you? We live in a very dangerous world. We could wake up in a whole different world tomorrow. It could be dramatically changed. I mean, the sabers are rattling Nuclear bombs and nuclear attacks are being threatened by Putin and the Russians. Everything could be different tomorrow. What are you going to do if that be the case? What are you going to do if somebody wrongs you greatly tomorrow? Now, many would be discouraged and simply give up. Others would plot ways of revenge. But we find here in Joseph no pity party. We see him committed to the promises of God. Now you say, what promises? He doesn't have a Bible. Yeah, but he had two dreams that God gave him. And those dreams told him that this wasn't where he was going to end up. As tough as it is, he's a slave. Do you realize to disobey his master, he could be put to death and his master would not be in trouble. Suddenly, his entire life has changed. Now in the study today, as Joseph finds us in uh, our study of Joseph, finds us in Genesis 39, and it picks up where Genesis 37 left off. You say, why didn't we cover Genesis 38? Because Genesis 38 leaves the subject of Joseph 
goes back over to the promised land and the story of Judah. Now, I believe in chapter 38, we see a great change that takes place in Judah that's very important, really, for the rest of the, rest of the time on earth because things get changed. The birthright goes to Judah. Now, I know the Bible also tells us about Ephraim, but the line of Christ is going to come through Judah, and I believe because of what takes place in Genesis 38. You remember, the line was not going to come through Reuben because of Reuben's immorality with Bilhah, a handmaid of, uh, of one of Jacob's, of Leah, Jacob's wife. And then not only that, you've got Simeon and Levi. They were men of anger. They slew a city in their anger. So they lost the opportunity to have the Christ come through them. But in Genesis chapter 38, we find Judah giving his son to a woman by the name of Tamar. But his son dies. And so then he gives his next son to Tamar, who, and by the way, this son was a wicked son, and he dies. God kills him. Now he has one more son, but Judah does not give this gal to that third son. And instead, what happens, one day he goes down to the market, sees a prostitute there, at least he thinks she's a prostitute. It's really Tamar in disguise, and he commits immorality with her, and he gets caught. The woman lays a trap for him, so that when he finds out that she's expecting, she says, by the man who gave me these, and the signet, and the, and the uh, uh, what's that called? Staff, there you go. And the staff that he had indicated it was Judah. And Judah admits his sin and declares his sin. And I believe at that point, things changed dramatically for Judah. Now you say, preacher, I disagree with you on that. Fine, you've got a right to be wrong. That's okay. Anyway, we get back to Joseph. It seems like a very dark story that couldn't get worse. How do you handle a bad situation? I mean, after all... Can God use getting fired for good? I mean, there have been people who've done everything right at work and they've still gotten fired. Can he, being, can he mean being falsely accused for good? Can he mean being slandered for good? I'm still reminded of David when he's being run off the throne by his own son Absalom and Shimei comes out and curses David. Abishai wants to go over and slay Uh, Shimei, and uh, David says, what? What if God told him to curse David? Should I have him killed for cursing David? And whenever I read that, I think of David saying something like this. Maybe God decided I needed a good cursing. Sometimes we get so high and mighty in ourselves to think we're so special that God brings something like that along to show us that we're really not all that much. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Well, notice God's hand in the circumstances. It says in verse 1, well, verse 2 says, And the Lord was with Joseph. Now, God's hand in the circumstances, because as you read this, you can see God working. He could have been sold into slavery to anybody, anybody who had the money. And no doubt in Egypt, there were a bunch of harsh taskmasters They were all basically pagans. They didn't believe in the Jehovah God of the Bible. And so he would be subject to them. But it's Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, the one who was responsible 
for seeing to it that the, uh, that the Pharaoh was protected. Not only that, he also had charge of the prison where anybody who fell in disfavor with Pharaoh would be thrown. This is a very powerful man, and this is the man that buys him. God had a particular plan, a plan that no one could have foreseen but God. Now, guaranteed, here's Joseph. He's got the dream. He doesn't know how God's going to work it out, but he's always looking for God to work it out. May I just say this, that from the time that he is sold into slavery until the time that he finally gets out of the prison house, it's 13 years thrown as a slave to begin with at the age of 17. And he doesn't come out of the prison house till the age of 30. 13 long, hard years and he hadn't done anything wrong. But God is doing something. We see his owner. It's Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. This is the man whose job was the protection of the king of Egypt. God has put him in a place where he can observe some of the palace intrigues down in Egypt. I mean, Egypt was a foreign land to Joseph, and it would be to Jacob later on until they came in and ended up getting the best of the land, all because of Joseph. With the Egyptian government being so powerful... One day, God's going to put him on the throne, and he's right in the place where he can learn an awful lot about what went on in the capital where the, uh, where the king was at. He'd be able to start on the very first day that he would be elevated in leading Egypt because of this excellent training that he'd be getting. The afflicted need to look on their afflictions as a school, which divine providence has provided Graduates of this school get good positions. I mean, he gets a great position. After 13 years, he gets a great position. Don't forget, 13 years, 13 years of having been done wrong. But he has a right attitude. Notice his obligation. It seems like a step down, perhaps, from the coat of many colors to simply being a bond slave. But God is developing his capacity for future service. Not only that, God is developing his character for future service. God goes to great lengths to develop character in those that he's going to assign to high places. You know, there are way too many who think when they're in high places that everybody is there to serve them. But the reality is it will be his response to serve a nation and to save a nation. Not just save Israel through Jacob, but also to save the Egyptians because they're going to go through seven years of famine. And Joseph is going to be the one who's going to give them the plan so that they can go through the seven years of famine and still live. Few things develop character as much as lowliness. The Bible says before honor is humility, Proverbs 15, 33. I mean, after all, think about preparing Moses. Moses starts out his first 40 years as being known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was brought up in the Egyptian educational system. First 40 years. And of course, when things take place, he sees that that Israelite harming one of the Hebrews, he kills 
uh, he, he, an Egyptian harming one of the Israelites. He kills the Egyptian. Next day, he finds out that it is known, so he takes off. After 40 years of being in high position, lots of money, well-known, all of that, the next 40 years he spent simply taking care of sheep on the backside of the desert. 40 years. And then God brings him back to lead the nation out. Somebody has put it this way. Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. Spent his second years, 40 years, finding out he was a nobody. And spending his third 40 years finding out what God can do with a nobody. The way up in serving God is down. You understand that? The way up in serving God is down. Humility is what is needed because God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. This should be a great lesson to those in lowly situations. We should not feel we are exempt from such training. Even when it comes, for instance, to pastoring. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible says, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. I had a preacher friend up in, uh, up in Nashville, started a church up there, went to a church down in Florida later on, and he used to call this the danger of rapid rise. Some guys advance way too fast, and then they can't handle the fame. They th- begin to think that they ought to have every good thing come to them, and they need to be brought down first of all. You destroy character by giving wealth, position, and materials to people who have not learned the character to earn it. I thank God that I started out in a church where on our high day we ran 13. First church I pastored, high day, we had 13. How about that? Had to pick up people in my little gremlin car and bring them out to the church. Sometimes I'd preach to one. Sometimes, well, no, I preached to more than that because my wife was there and Kathy was there. So I got to preach to four. That's why I don't have any trouble, for instance, preaching on Wednesday morning when the crowd is small. Ask Mark more about that. There were times when he was the only one here for that Wednesday morning service back when we first started it in the beginning of the 90s. And man, I looked at him for everything. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He's the only one there. And he took it. But that's exactly why some of these churches are canceling church on Christmas Day because the preacher feels his messages are too important to only preach to a few. And those kind of pastors don't deserve to be heard by anybody. The reality is we have a message to bring. If God gives you one, if he gives you five, if he gives you a hundred, if he gives you a thousand, you ought to be faithful to bring it. Let me say about Sunday school teachers, you only have one show up one Sunday, then you give them the best lesson you can give. You make it a special time. Don't you dare put them together with another class. Teacher that'll do that has no business teaching anybody. We are not so important. And our study and preparation is not so important that we can't give it to just one. In fact, I remember we had a missionary call. This is a few years ago now. Uh, He called up. He wanted to come by Madison Baptist Church. A lot of missionaries want to come by Madison Baptist Church, and we understand that. We are faithful at giving, taking care of missionaries and so on. And I said, listen, here's, here's what happens. When you show up, we'll be glad to put you up that night if needed. You will have 
20 minutes in the service to present your work. And if you want to show slides, if you want to sing, uh, if you want to... What, you, the 20 minutes are yours to best lay the burden on the hearts of our people. And he says to me, he said, I don't think I can do it in 20 minutes. I said, then I guess it's just best you not come. Truth is, if they can't do it in 10 minutes, best that they not come. If they get one minute, they ought to get up and do the best they can for that one minute. And then sit down. I mean, just do your best. Well, it's not worth the drive. What if we take you on? Would that make it worth the drive? But I tell you what, they go over the time I give them, we're not taking them on. I don't care who they are. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. They can stop. Amen. That's good stuff. I didn't have any of that down right there. I just gave that to you right off the cuff. Anyway, divine providence may at times be painful in our lives, but it is supremely profitable in character for service. Then we see Joseph's heart in his duties. Notice verse 4. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his hand. We see Joseph's wisdom. He served Potiphar. He didn't allow his hurt feelings to develop poor working habits. Now, as a pastor, I mean, I've been blessed. I've been blessed throughout the years. A number of people have at least loved me for a while. And I consider myself one of the most spoiled pastors in America. I mean, when I, when I think of how I preach, I, I know I come across a little harsh from time to time, but I do try to make sin to be extremely sinful so that people won't do it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If I sugarcoat it, you won't think there's much wrong with it. So that's what I try to do. But I realize some people, that's not their cup of tea. I get that. And I realize that some people, they get tired of it. And I get that too. I understand it. By the same token, whereas I get a lot of amens for the things I preach that some people would immediately be voted out of their church if they preached like that in their churches. I've been spoiled like that, yet every pastor understands what it is to have people gossip about you, say unkind things about you. All Facebook has done is simply made it more public. That's all it's done. That's why I'm not on Facebook. You can write anything you want about me, and unless somebody comes around and says, Pastor, did you hear? Nope, don't want to hear it. I don't need it. They got the blessing of getting it off their chest. Good for them. And they'll have to answer to God for what they put down on that page. So what I'll do is just pray for them. Praise the Lord. God's good all the time. Well, the proof that he worked well was that he was promoted to overseer. Evidently, he even worked better than the other slaves that had been there for a while. You know, he's got a couple choices. He can be harsh and look for ways to escape, just try to get by, find out every way to shirk his duties. But he would never be made overseer acting like that. But he's been done wrong. No doubt his feelings are hurt. He's not concentrating on that. He's concentrating on being what he's supposed to be as a child of God in a bad situation. So be what you're supposed to be. Quit crying. Quit talking. Oh, it's not fair. They treated me wrong. They talked about me. You don't know what they said to me. Get over it. Don't even listen to it. 
Doesn't help anybody. Doesn't help you. Doesn't help anybody else. People are going to talk about you. You got that? People are going to talk about you. So what? Some are going to love you. They'll talk about you for good. Some are not going to love you. They'll talk about you for not good. Yeah, but there are Christians. Oh, there's always been Christians who say things they shouldn't say. And I'll guarantee you everybody here at one time or another had said something about other people that wasn't true. You thought they were true, but they weren't true. Everybody here has had one time or another in their life when they have gotten upset with other people and have been less than kind. That's human nature. It's going to happen. Understand that. Joseph has been treated terribly by his brothers. How should that affect his being sold into his service now as a slave? Well, it depends. Does he want God's will for his life? Or does he just want to nurse his feelings? I'm really, I'm just getting sick and tired of people using their hard time as an excuse not to do right. Just do right. Joseph does right. He's an amazing guy here. One of the best medicines for adversity is to give ourselves energetically to our duties. It can improve our circumstances. Still a slave, but now with freedom that he didn't have. He's moving up. He's overseer in Potiphar's house, an important house. Our reaction to our troubles will either bless us or curse us. And we've got nobody to blame but ourselves. Now, Joseph didn't do anything wrong to get sold into slavery. He was done wrong. So here he is in this situation. He sees God's hand in it. And guess what? Because he sees God's hand in it, so does this overseer that he's working for. Notice in verse 2, it says this, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Who saw that? Potiphar saw that. People notice you and your testimony. They notice you. And by the way, they notice you when you're on top and they notice you when you're not. What kind of testimony are you giving to God's working? He had lost position and money and name, but he hadn't lost the presence or the power of God. God's still with you. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. We may be in a hard situation. That's all right. God's still there. The presence of God does not depend on the state of our finances. It does not depend on the state of our soul. Nothing as valuable as his presence should be nearly as important to us as his presence. You remember Moses prayed to the Lord in Exodus 33 and verse 15. If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. He didn't want to go to the promised land if God wasn't going with him. His presence, his presence with you as a slave is better than you being on the mountaintop without him. Then you got Joseph's witness. Again, we learned that this witness is seen in his work. Potiphar was able to see that God was in it all. And he didn't even believe in Joseph's God. He was a pagan. And yet, notice he even uses the term Jehovah here. Whenever you see 
Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament. It's always the name Jehovah. Turn back for just a moment in Colossians chapter 3. This is, this is interesting. Isn't it amazing that in 2022, we're still talking about slavery like it exists in America? Isn't that interesting? What on earth happened to us? That ended a long time ago. And yet we're still stuck in that, can't get out of it. I want you to notice in in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. He says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they, may, lest they be discouraged. Servants, that's the word bond slave. It is the same word that Paul uses of himself when he says, Paul, a servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He says, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men's pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Do you realize whether in this particular case you be a master or you be the slave, you're responsible to the Lord to do that which was right. Now understand, when Americans think of slavery, we think of pre-Civil War slavery and we think of black, white. Listen, never in the history of the world before that was that ever the case. A slave was any conquered people. Had nothing to do with the color of their skin. You know the man that wrote Amazing Grace, who before he got saved, did run a slave ship, but he got captured and he was also sold into slavery And he wasn't black. Amazing grace. Read the story of John Newton. It's amazing. It kind of blows our minds. So when the Bible is talking about slavery, it's not dealing with it from the American perspective. But when it comes to life, our responsibility in whatever we're caught up in in life is still to put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Joseph's witness is a rebuke to believers who just work to get by. The American work ethic today is only to do what you can to get by with. God's work ethic is to do your best. When I pastored at Tennessee Ridge, we had a number of men in our church at Tennessee Ridge who worked for the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, most of them, and they'd work at different plants, but we did have a close one at Cumberland City. There was a coal TVA plant. Some, some of them worked down in Johnson City, uh, down around Waverly, Tennessee. And uh, I would have men come to me who would say, Pastor, I believe that as a worker, I ought to do my best job. I believe I ought to do my best work. But he says, I've... In the union that we have to be in to work for TVA, I have men come to me and tell me to slow down. I'm making them look bad. And he said, they really put pressure on me not to do my best work, but just simply go in, put in your time, do enough work to, to, to get things along, but don't do too much. May I say, that's just wicked. 
That's wicked. So today, where are we at now today? What does that kind of thing end up fostering in the nation? People don't want to work a job. They want to be able to go someplace where they get a paycheck no matter how they work. As long as they can get a paycheck, they're fine. There's a reason why so many contractors have hired illegals because the illegals work. Oh, well, it's just cheap labor. No, they work. It's hard to find people who work. That's my political statement for the day. But God is paying attention to how we work, and others will pay attention. Being faithful in the lowly jobs, he that humbles himself, the Scripture says, shall be exalted. So we see Joseph's worth. Look at verse 5. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. The key to Potiphar's fortune was Joseph and Joseph's God. And Potiphar is one of those interesting people who understood it. Now think for just a second, the value of the righteous. In Sodom, all they needed was 10 in Sodom and the city would have been spared. Just 10 righteous. That's all, just 10. The value of the righteous because the righteous are supposed to be different. The followers of the God of the Bible are supposed to be different than the rest of society. What a valuable asset to be a Christian. Others get blessed because of you. Many of you, well, some of you know the name J.R. Faulkner. J.R. Faulkner was the number two man at Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, under Dr. Lee Robertson. Now, by the time that I got there and by the time that Brother Larry was there and a few others that are in the church, Uh, J.R. Faulkner had been elevated to co-pastor, but everybody knew he was simply the assistant pastor. Dr. Robertson was the ideas man, and Dr. Faulkner is the one who made it all work. He would put the nuts and bolts and gears together of anything that Dr. Robertson came up with. Now, he had been a senior pastor himself over in East Ridge. That's a suburb there of Chattanooga. Uh, He had been a senior pastor at a church there, and he came over when Dr. Robertson asked him to come over. Now, I had Dr. Dr. Faulkner taught the Preacher Boys class, and this was basic things about being a pastor and things that you need to do. And when he was teaching on the second man, he went to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 16, where God says to Moses when he called him, and he shall be thy spokesman, speaking of Aaron, And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people. And he shall be, even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth. And thou shalt be to him instead of God. He said, listen, Dr. Robertson is pastor of this church. And my job, my job, this is what Dr. Faulkner taught. My job is to do whatever he wants done and to do it to the best of my ability. And it doesn't matter Who gets the credit for it? As a matter of fact, he said, you know, the ethic that we have in America, unfortunately, is often if you're climbing a ladder and you want to go higher, there are too many people that think you go higher by pulling the man that's above you by pulling him down. He said, let me tell you how you go higher. 
push him up. And as you push him up, there's room for you to go up too. He was known in American Christianity back in the 70s and 80s as the greatest number two man in America in churches. Because that was his whole philosophy. Totally different from anybody else to serve in his place. We are here. By the way, there's a reason why pastors or assistant pastors or whatever are called ministers. Because they're to minister. Jesus came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Having said all that, God was not done with Joseph's testing. And the devil was not done with Joseph's tempting. Now, he's had it tough. He's a slave. He doesn't have it as a lot of slaves, as bad as what they have. But then he's treating his time as a slave as different than everybody else. He's doing the very best that he can. He's not whining. He's not complaining or any of that. Then we got the harlot in the temptation, verses 7 through 12. Here we learn both the ways of temptation and we learn some things about how to handle temptation. There's the danger of the eye gate. Obviously, it was visual for he saw her and she came unto him. Um, and the Bible says cast, she cast her eyes upon Joseph and then made her illicit temptations. You know, you got to be careful what goes into the eye gate. If you're not careful about what goes into your eye gate, you are headed for trouble. When the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The first thing it says is to watch what comes out of your mouth. But then the next thing it says is let your eyes look right on. Now understand when that was written, there was no TV and there, was, there were no movie theaters. And at that time also, there was no internet to make it so easy. I mean, in order to get into a lot of the mess that people can get into in their own home today, people had to go outside the home, meet other people and get things from them, which was a deterrent because they didn't want to be known. But it's so easy today to get messed up in all of those things. But you've got to be careful. What happened to Eve? She saw. She looked at the fruit. Why in the world she did is beyond me. She knew what God had said about it. No matter what she would see in it, that wouldn't change what God had said. In Genesis 6-2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that ended up to great wickedness. Genesis 13-10, Lot lifted up his eyes toward Sodom. He saw Sodom, and then he pitched his tent toward Sodom. You've got David. He's in the palace at a time he should have been out in battle, and you find that David... Walks out on his patio, and there he looks across the city, and there he sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. It's amazing what the eye gate can do. Judges 7.21, when Achan saw the Babylonian garment and the wedges of gold and of silver, when he saw it. Now, seeing it was not the sin, but then he lusted after it in... Um, we could give you many other examples dealing with that. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 101 and verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. Lamentations 3.51, the scripture says, Mine eye affecteth my heart because of all the daughters of my city. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You've got to be careful what you look at. 
Then there's the temptation was not only visual, but it was versatile. Before uh, he tempted Joseph with despair, he did not give in to that despair, so now he tempts him with delight. Here's a woman offering herself to him. There ought to be an immediate answer to that, and that immediate answer ought to be no! Once you start thinking about it, your goose is cooked. This is why we have the warning of 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion. Walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The temptation was dignified. After all, this was the master's wife. I must be something. That the master's wife would look at me like that. No. I was a rock and roll disc jockey in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I did shows every week up at a place called The Note in Wayland, Michigan, probably about 30, 40 miles north of Kalamazoo. Now, I was a rock and roll disc jockey. Obviously, I was not saved. And uh, I, was, I was the number one rock disc jockey in Kalamazoo for a year and a half. At that time, the city had about 50,000 people in it, 60,000. I don't know how many today. But while I was, <laughs> while I was going up there, there was this one gal. Now, here I, I'm married. I'm happily married. Thank God for that. I wasn't a Christian yet. I didn't know the Bible or anything like that. But I noticed this one gal always seemed to kind of be showing up where I was around. And so, first of all, I acted like I didn't have a clue. I didn't have any clue as to what she was doing or anything like that at all. Well, we had, that went on for a couple weeks. But my job was to be up there. That's where I was working. And so, uh, so I, all I said was hi, and then we'd go, we'd go off someplace else. Well, we had Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Anybody remember that name? Uh, we got three of you that remember Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Thank God. Uh, by the way, I also did the show with Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Boy, that's impressive, isn't it? And then with Kenny Rogers and the first edition before it was just Kenny Rogers. I did a show with him as well. But anyway, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels came. And uh, when they got done with their first set, I went up and, you know, spun a bunch of records. Now, we didn't do this thing where you put a record on the turntable and go, that is so dumb. How does anybody get anything out of that? I don't get it. We played the full record all the way through without interruption. Back when music was music. No, that, that, that's not good either. But anyway, so I got done with my set. My set was, I think, a half hour long, and Mitch Ryder was to come back in. He didn't come back in for another half hour beyond that, and he walked in with that gown, his arm around her. I thought, good, night alive, saved myself a lot of trouble. Praise the Lord. I got news for you. By, by the way, some of those guys look so scuzzy. Obviously, they hadn't washed their hair in a month. They were dirty, smelly, and always amazed me that some of those knockout females would throw themselves at them. And you wonder, what did they see? Oh, it has nothing to do with the guy being macho and really great. Nah, he could be dirty, filthy, it didn't matter. Because that's men and women. That's just the reality. You think, I must be something, man. People are throwing themselves at me. Get over yourself. You're not that much. 
The temptation was dignified. It was the master's wife. Evil tries to dress itself up to look very dignified. By the way, temptation was also timely. It was a time of success. He was being prosperous. In a time of success, you really have to be careful. Time of success, you end up allowing some things in your life that you shouldn't. Promoted to the overseer of the house, he was well favored. And the scripture says, after these things, after this time of success in Potiphar's house, that's when she threw herself at him. Not only that, it was persistent. In verse 10, the scripture says, And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day. What did he do? He hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. It was a time of secrecy. I mean, after all, there's no doubt Potiphar was out of the house. And Joseph was allowed in a place that nobody else was allowed. That time of secrecy is a time of great danger. The temptation was aggressive. Joseph is in a lose-lose situation. How's he going to respond to this? This is the master's wife. He can't win as man looks at it, no matter what he does. But he is a winner because he said, no. And he ran out of the house. Now, she's going to use that against him. She's going to claim that he raped her. Now, we're going to cover the rest of that story next week, but I want you to think ahead if you read the scripture ahead. Potiphar has him thrown in prison. What does that tell me? It tells me he didn't believe his wife. Because had he believed his wife, he'd have killed him outright right there. He was a captain of the guard. Joseph's life was in his hand. He could kill Joseph at any time. And it wouldn't make any difference as far as Pharaoh was concerned. He'd have been successful at it, gotten away with it. He didn't believe his wife. So he put him in the prison that he, Potiphar, had control over. And we find that Joseph ends up, after being wrong done a second time, acts in the prison with the same character that he did in Potiphar's house. God was preparing him to be the number two man under Pharaoh. God was preparing him to salvage Jacob's family. God was using him. You look at Job. Job loses everything. Loses all of his children. He loses his health. What was God doing? Why would God allow it? Now, Job didn't know it, but God had chosen Job to be his champion in the battle against Satan. And evidently, God never told him. He didn't know it. So what happens when it's all over and God comes on the scene and speaks to Job? He doesn't come on and say, Job, you've had it hard. You've had it tough. I'm just glad you stood as long as you did. 
No, he spends the next three chapters asking him 84 questions without waiting for an answer to let Job know he didn't know as much as he thought he knew. He doesn't sit there and soothe his feelings. He does reward him, but he didn't get those other 10 children. He didn't get them overnight, I'll guarantee you that. A few years pass before he gets them, and then he's got to raise those screaming kids for the next several years. I mean, the other kids were already out of the house. Well, wait a second. I'm just simply saying, we get so concerned about our feelings and our hurts. Everybody has them. What's big to you is big to you, and what's big to them is big to them. But let us, since we're children of God, be a good representative of our God and serve Him in whatever situation we are in. Father, thank you for these lessons that we learned from Joseph's life. These would be good for every teenager that we have here to remember these things. They're going to have people do them wrong. May they respond correctly because it is in responding correctly that we find the victory. It is in responding correctly that we learn some valuable lessons. And we may be done wrong more than once. For young adults, for older people, we get to thinking that we're beyond that. No, no, no. We're still responsible to do right. God, help us to stand for you. Help us to serve you. And help us to meet the difficulties of life and the hurts of life, glorifying your name in all things. And we'll praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.